This morning's scripture comes from Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and indeed, O oh, come, let us adore him. Lord, as we have been journeying through some promises that you delivered in old, that were recorded by the prophets in the Old Testament, we see coming to fruition in the life of Jesus. And we thank you. Reminded of Christ's words on that Emmaus road in Luke 24 when he set them down and he instructed them from the beginning of Moses and all the prophets how all of this spoke of him. Lord, as we go to the text today, just guide our hearts. Lord, may it be more than just a, an intellectual journey, theo theological journey, but one, Lord, that uh, pricks our hearts and reminds us of who you are and our relationship to you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Micah. Not Matthew, Micah chapter 5. This is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, latter part of the Old Testament, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah 5 is where we are going to start our journey this morning. And as you do, just a reminder, if you're fairly new to CBF, we have an opportunity at 1130, meet the pastors. It's in the room. It's right across the hall 
love to have you join us. Just an informal gathering learn, to learn a little bit more about who we are. These crazy people that have planted three crosses on 161st. So we'd love to meet with you. Our Christmas series has been one entitled A Promise Fulfilled. I hope you're following along in those devotionals that we put out. It's been great reading through them. There's extras in the foyer. You can grab those. But as we've been journeying through A Promise Fulfilled, and we've been looking at some Old Testament text in light of the new, and this is another one that God has delivered through the prophet Micah. In Micah 5.2, it says, As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf, one whose origins are in the distant past. So the Lord will hand the people of Israel over to their enemies until the time when the woman in labor gives birth. Then the rest of the king's countrymen will return to be reunited with the people of Israel. He will assume his post and shepherd the people by the Lord's strength. By the sovereign authority of the Lord his God. They will live securely in that land. That time he will be honored even in the distant regions of the earth. And he will give us peace. Now we need to get the context here. Because if you're like me, I get a little discombobulated with the prophets, figuring out, okay, what time frame were they in? Micah's a contemporary of Isaiah. We looked at Isaiah last week, seven through nine. And Micah is serving in a time when things are not well. <clears throat> we know that eventually Israel, remember, Israel splits into two, Israel and Judah, they have some tribes to the north, some tribes to the south. Judah has Jerusalem. It has, you know, has the mothership city, which is great. Israel is more wayward. Uh, they have wicked kings. Not that Judah doesn't have their own lots as well. But eventually during this time frame, Assyria will come and they will wipe out Israel. 721, Israel is destroyed. Judah just remained. And Isaiah foretold this. So does Micah. But Micah goes one step further, and he says, oh, and by the way, Jerusalem, you're going to lay in rubble, because not only is Assyria going to take Israel out, but the Babylonians are going to come, this empire, they'll destroy the Assyrians, and they'll destroy you, and they'll haul you away into exile. Now, with a message like that, I can assure you he was never invited to bar mitzvahs, right? <clears throat> no Hanukkah parties for you. Uh, you're not, this is not how you win friends and influence people. This kind of a message. And yet in the middle of this message nestled in Micah's prophecy is this idea that he gives of a time when Jerusalem would become the center of the Lord's earthly reign through the promised son of David. In the midst of judgment, there's an element of blessing that he delivers here in 4 and 5. And in it, he warns them, yes, but also he's telling them, listen, there's a day coming. It's interesting, Micah's name means who is like the Lord, who is like Yahweh. And the book ends with that question, who is a God like you? And so Micah is reflecting, yes, these are horrible times. Yes, there's really bad times that are to come for Judah. But he reflects in the, in the midst of it, God is faithful 
to his covenant that he's made with his people. Sinful people, yes. But it's a promise that there is a future coming kingdom and there is a David who will come, a son of David who will reign. And this is what he delivers here. Now in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, we see him, really these words are directed to the first coming of Jesus. Four later on all the way through nine is looking at the second coming of Jesus. We have to keep in mind, I think Bruce Waltke in his work on the prophets makes a great point. He states, the prophets present their heralded events as occurring at the same historical horizon. But these occurrences might in fact prove to be separated by ages. And that's what Mike is doing. He's giving us, a, uh, there, there's a pattern that God is working and the promises that are nestled here will see some fulfillment, yet there's yet a future fulfillment that will take place. I wrote, you, you've got to unpack, though, the words here of Micah 5. Because if you've been listening to Isaiah and we, we looked at other texts in 2 Samuel 7, David's promise or the promise that God gave to David, you're starting to see some elements, aren't you, that, that are coming to fruition. So I was thinking through this, <clears throat> it's kind of like untangling a string of Christmas lights. There's nothing worse than hanging Christmas lights. For those of you who pay to have it done, blessings on you. Uh, <clears throat> but you, you get out the, the string of lights, why I don't know why I do this, but I pulled them out from last year, and it's one huge ball. It's the size of last year's snowman's body of the, you know, they're, they're enormous. And I pull one strand out, and it's actually tangled in with two other strands. There's a Christmas ornament and last year's mistletoe. They're all just wrapped together, you know. And, and when you start to unpack Micah 5, you realize, wait a minute, there's a lot more here that meets the eye. Micah is building, and I want to show you this as we go through. If you're taking notes, you can write these texts down. There are a lot of passages we could weave in today's sermon. But I'm just going to highlight a few that are being, I think, brought through the text here in Micah 5. The first of these is Genesis 49. <clears throat> if you remember the scene, Jacob's about to croak. He's got his sons. He's giving them blessings. He gets to Judah, and he states this. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, think about the passage we just heard from Matthew. We're going to get there. I know she stole our thunder, but we will get there. Thanks, Kathy, but we will get there. Not to depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. The nations will obey him. What does Micah 5 state in verse 4? Look at this. It says, they will live securely, for at that time he will be honored even in the distant regions of the earth. The nations will come. This one who is a descendant from the tribe of Judah. Micah's bringing this into the text. And it's one of the strands that we untangle. Here's another that comes through, and that is 1 Samuel 16. If you remember 1 Samuel 16, Nathan the prophet comes to Bethlehem. The text tells us the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I'm sorry, not Nathan, <laughs> Samuel. How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him? The text says... From being king over Israel. 
fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jerusalem. Where did the Magi go? Jerusalem. It's where you would expect the royal king of the, the Jews to be born. But what does the text tell us in 1 Samuel 16? It goes all the way back to David, and it says to Jesse in Bethlehem, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. Bethlehem is the birth, birthplace of David, the one whom God's made a promise to that your descendants will reign, and there's a day coming when he will reign. It's irony, isn't it? Bethlehem is where Rachel died and was buried. She died giving birth to Benjamin. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And yet the one from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, David, is the true king of Israel. So Micah 5.2, notice what the text says. It says, for you, Bethlehem, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah. In other words, it's not so much that it's, it's a little village, but who would have thought that Bethlehem would become the birthplace of the Davidic dynasty? That speaks, by the way, of God's enablement. So we, we untangle these, this ball of lights that we have here from Micah, and we start seeing we've got Genesis all the way back 1700 B.C. Then you get to David 1000 B.C. You get to 2 Samuel 5, another text, chapter 5, verse 2. And the Lord said to you, this is what the people remind David, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you will be prince over Israel. Now notice what Micah states there in verse 4. He will assume his post and shepherd the people. Wow. No committee puts this together. We're talking hundreds of years separated, a thousand years and Micah, as you unravel this, you see themes coming through from the Old Testament. The metaphor of a sheep and a shepherd is used to describe the relationship time and time again between the Lord and his people. That's why the religious rulers in Ezekiel were condemned because they didn't shepherd God's people well. And what did Psalm 78? He chose David, his servant, the text tells us, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. Oh, wow. Of course, what does Jesus state? I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who's come that was prophesied here. Well, we're not done. As we continue to move and untangle, we come to another text, and that's Psalm 2. It's called a royal psalm. An enthronement psalm. Because in Psalm 2, the Lord declares, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, Jerusalem. The king says, I will announce the Lord's decrees. As he said to me, you are my son. Why? Because he made a covenant back in 2 Samuel 7. Text we looked at. Notice what Micah 5.2 states. From you, a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf. When David was anointed, when Samuel told to go anoint David, Jesse's son, he said, I have chosen him on my behalf. The, the key, it's, it's, it's so connected here. And then we get to Isaiah 7, another text, which is just key 
to what we're looking at in the passage we looked at last week. For a child has been born to us, he will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom. And what does Micah 5.2 state? He is from Bethlehem, from the clans of Judah. This is the one. And notice what the text tells us, what Micah states, one whose origins are in the distant past. Some scholars argue this is speaking of the pre-existence of Christ. I don't think so. Because the phrase is used often to refer to the origin. It goes all the way back to David. That's why the Net Bible translates it here, the distant past. It, it, it goes back to the David. It speaks to this royal line that has been promised. Some would argue all the way back to Genesis 49. And so here you have all these strands, these Old Testament strands, rolled up into a ball. And as you unravel, and it's not as ugly as the ball of light strands that I pull out of the cupboard um, and the madness that it comes with this. It's, this is a beautiful display here in Micah 5 too, isn't it? And we could spend all day, all week, looking at biblical theology, Old Testament texts that come crashing into Micah 5 as he weaves this together. And then you come to Matthew. So turn to Matthew chapter 2. It's a familiar text. But when you understand the backdrop, and we just did a, a really fast journey, but as you do a review of these Old Testament texts woven together in Micah 5, brought into this passage, it is significant. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and in Judea, it will be referred to in verse 5 and in verse 6. This is Bethlehem of Judah. Don't miss it. <laughs> Some say, well, so you can identify which Bethlehem. No, this is, there's far more significance here theologically. This is going back to Micah. It's going back to Genesis 49. They're all tied together. And you look at this, and we're, we see Jesus being one of the, obviously, the focus of this scene. But you also say, he tells us it's in the time of King Herod. He will reign from 37 to about 54 BC. Herod was only half Jewish. It's a long story. It's kind of as the world turns, but he, uh, through a, a bunch of manipulation, he becomes king through really a client puppet king of Rome. He counts to Rome. Rome is, is really the big daddy. <clears throat> but Herod will reign. And he is not loved by the people, by the way. But Herod, he's tolerated. <laughs> and then you have these wise men from the east. We've talked about this passage a couple years ago. If you want, you can go back and listen to this sermon. But the, these magi were a priestly caste, most likely from Arabia or Persia. They were <clears throat> known, excuse me, <clears throat> for their uh, abilities in astrology and in great wisdom. And we see that here as they've been following a star. And we know because of that, the star appears when Jesus is born. So the, the, this idea that the wise men are there at the manger scene could never have occurred. <clears throat> in other words, even in verse 11, it tells us that the Magi came to the house. They would have come later. If they're from Persia, that's a thousand, over a thousand miles away. You can travel 20 miles a day by camel. So it would have taken you not a few days, 
months to arrive. And when Herod kills the babies of Bethlehem, he goes up to two years of age. So it gives you an idea. <clears throat> so I've said it before. When you put out your nativity set, the wise men need to be way over here in the other room. Okay? If I come to your house, I'll move them. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> so the Magi came, sorry, to just, to, and the, by the way, the text never tells us they're three, and they're not from Orient R, so there we are. But anyway, uh, if you love the hymn, go ahead and sing it, just clarify it as you go along. But notice they come to Jerusalem, they go to the royal palace, it's what you would expect, because they're looking for the king of the Jews. By the way, the text tells us that, where is this one born king of the Jews? Throughout Matthew's gospel, that phrase is only used of Gentiles. And what's more ironic is they've come to worship. They'll tell us that three times they've come to worship this one. And it says, we've come to, to see this one who was born king of the Jews. We saw the star when it arose. The star is followed. Uh, it's interesting. There's all sorts of explanations. But we see here the star appears. It reappears, disappears and uh, it can follow a location. So there's something unique, no doubt about it, and the wise men obviously have figured that out. When they have delivered this message, everyone rejoiced. No, what does the text tell us? When King Herod heard this, he was alarmed with all of Jerusalem. That is a very strong term. It's used of the disciples when Jesus <clears throat> was in the boat with them and the storm was occurring. There's great anxiety. And the, the Magi come, they approach Herod, and we shouldn't be surprised that Herod is startled. In his latter phase of his reign, he became very paranoid. In fact, he killed his own wife, he killed some of his sons, he had to write his will at least three different times. Uh, he said that when he died, he wanted 500 prominent Jews killed so at least the country would mourn at his death, that he kills a couple dozen children, if that, from Bethlehem, no big deal. <laughs> he, has, he becomes very ruthless. He becomes very paranoid. So the idea that the king of the Jews is present, no wonder he is startled. And of course, we know what his motives are, as we'll see here very soon. It's interesting, he's wise enough to go to the chief priest and the experts <clears throat> And he asked them, where is the Christ? Now watch this very closely. This is key. Who was to be born? After assembling them, it says to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And they said, it's written by the prophet. They knew. They understood what Micah 5 was saying. They didn't miss it. Now, the question we're going to ask is, why didn't they go with the Magi to worship this king of the Jews, <laughs> their king, the promised one. But they understood the text. They understood clearly Micah. In fact, we can look at later rabbinic writings from the Targums, etc. They also interpreted it as such. This is the one that was promised. You do have to wonder, Bethlehem's only six miles south of Jerusalem. Why didn't they travel with the Magi? Wouldn't you be curious? If indeed this is true, they were too busy serving the Lord in the temple. <laughs> Said with tongue in cheek. Notice that even Herod refers to him as the Messiah, the promised one. And as the text tells us again, 
Micah 5. They understood very clearly. And Herod, as a good politician, tells the Magi what they want to hear in the next verse. Look what he says. Privately summoned, so he's done this publicly calling the religious rulers, wins favor, isn't this wonderful? And then he has a private hearing with the wise men. And he said, you know, when you, when you find him, let me know because I want to worship him as well. <laughs> Bless his pointed little head. But once again, he's telling them what they want to hear. And again, we see the star appears just as it did before. So it reveals itself again. It leads them. And when they saw the star, the, the magi, they shouted joyfully or exceedingly with great joy. Time and time again, when God's work is being revealed, there is joy. Luke highlights that. I love that Pastor Michael noted that earlier here with the announcements that joy was present. Uh, and you see joy at the end of the Gospel of Luke, all woven together. But here it is as well. As they came into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They want to make it very clear, this one is a virgin born. Come to the house, saw the child. They Look what they do. They bow down or they, they fell to the ground and worshiped. These are the first people in the Gospel of Matthew that worships. It should have been the religious rulers. No. It's Gentiles who came all the way from Arabia on a Delta flight. And here they are. And they fall down and they worship. And I mean, I mean, Christmas gifts galore, right? Look what they bring. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Costly gifts. One pound of frankincense in the first century would have cost at least two weeks worth of wages. We don't know how much they brought, but they have lavished. They've traveled a long way. They're going to make this count as they lavish their gifts. But far more significant, once again, is the Old Testament that is draped over this scene. Then you mustn't miss it. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen from you. From darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear. Listen to what Isaiah states. Nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Multitude of camels shall come over you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah and Arabia shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. That's 700 years before Christ. And in this scene so glorious, remember Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews. He must show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to his people. And what does he do? He weaves in Micah. He doesn't quote it verbatim, by the way. Because he's, he's taken a Christological highlighter and worked with the text to bring it in and, and to, to show this is what we've been looking to. This is the one. Now, there are a couple principles in your notes that I want you to see. It's vital. If all we did was a biblical theology journey, which we just did, that's fine. But there's far more significance than this that I want you to see this morning as we look at little Bethlehem and this group of magi who come bringing gifts. And that is, first of all, the sovereignty of God. You see that in principle one. The birth of Jesus testifies to his sovereignty. 
Let me give you a few points. First of all, God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. He is omniscient, that means he is all-knowing, and he is transcendent, which means he exists before, during, and after time. He's above time and space. I love what R.C. Sproul stated. He goes, if there's even one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, we cannot have the slightest confidence that any promise God has ever made about the future will come to pass. This is because even one molecule free from God is one molecule that has the power to thwart God's will. It's all in his control. From the promise made to Judah back in Genesis 49, all the way to Micah, all the way to Matthew, God is in charge. I mean, think about this. That's 1,700 years span from Genesis 49 until, oh, come, let us adore him, right, back in Bethlehem. That's countless generations. It's over 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 70 years in exile. It's various periods of political upheaval from civil wars to major armies coming in and destroying their lands. It's under wicked tyrants, kings, foreign powers, not to mention Satan, who sought to destroy them through such people as Haman. It's overcoming incredible obstacles. Sarah giving birth at 90. Oh. Jehoiakim and the curse that he brought on the Davidic line. How do you get around that, Lord? And, I mean, think about it. Show me a Hittite today. <laughs> Show me a Jebusite. Show me a descendant of Herod. You won't find any. But God has preserved the promises he made to his people time and time again. Now, I was thinking about the probability of all this. Let me just give you something to look at here as we go to this next slide. You realize, if we were to, we're going to get there. Do I need to hit it again? I do. Ah, I need to go back one, boys. Oh, and girls. There we go. All right. If you, if you throw a coin and it lands uh, 10 times on its head in a row, that will only happen one out of 1,024 times. Odds aren't really good that that can happen, is it? Let me give you another. Here's another. You get struck by lightning next year, well, that chance is 1,222,000 one to that, that, that would happen. So that's not very likely you'll get struck by lightning. That's good news. This isn't so good for those basketball fans. If you want to predict a perfect March Madness bracket, it's 1.6 billion chance that you will get it correct. That's not very good at all. But what about the prophecies of Jesus coming true? A number of years ago, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. The book was based on the science of probability and vouched for by the American Scientific affiliation, it set out the odds that any one man in all of history fulfilling the major prophecies in the life of Jesus. And they, they said, you know what, there's about 60 prophecies, 270 implications or innuendos or whatever. We're only going to take eight. What would it take to fulfill eight prophecies in the Old Testament in the life of Jesus? Here's their conclusion. One to one quadrillion The Christmas story has God's fingerprints all over it. He is sovereign. 
Look at the chances. That's only eight. Let's bump it up to 60. And now what number do you have? United States Senator or Senate Chaplain Richard Halverson wrote, The real problem with Jesus is not that folks can't believe in him. It's that they will not believe in him. Jeremiah 32, O sovereign Lord, you did indeed make heaven and earth by your mighty power and great strength. Nothing is too hard for you. You question God's sovereignty? Look at Bethlehem. Look at how God has fulfilled all the way back to Genesis, second Sam, first and second Samuel, Isaiah, Psalm 2, Micah, and all the way into Matthew. Secondly, God's sovereignty does not change. Malachi 3, the Lord states, Since I, the Lord, do not go back on my promises, you, sons of Jacob, have not perished. In other words, the promises made to Abraham and David were not abrogated or, or done away with or were conditional. The Old Testament writers understood this. This is why... <laughs> I, I, I hope you find great comfort in these promises that God has kept because he made some promises to us who are followers of Jesus, didn't he? Such as, the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. He will give us our daily bread. He promises to walk through the valleys as the good shepherd. He'll give us wisdom in the time we need it. He goes to prepare a place for us and on and on it goes. Why? Because God's sovereignty guarantees it. It did it in the life of Jesus, and he, those promises continue. Here's a third. God's sovereignty extends to every aspect of our lives. Jerry Bridges writes, No detail of your life is too insignificant for your heavenly Father's attention. No circumstance is so big that he cannot control it. Isn't that great? The Lord could have easily created the universe... And then said, you know what? I've decided not to intervene. I'm done. The Lord is not surprised by the circumstances we encounter. No accidents are random. God ordains and he orchestrates all things. Just look to Bethlehem. You know, you might be saying, well, that's great. The wise men have a star. I really don't have anything. God seems so distant he seems silent. Let me give you John 10 to cling to this morning. If you know Christ as your Savior, and that is you, you understand that he is the sole means of salvation and that Christ came to die on a cross for our sins. It states, I gave them eternal life that they will never perish, nor one will snatch them from my hand. You're secure. This sovereign one who kept his word to David and we'll keep his word when it's fulfilled. He keeps his word to us. And he goes on to state, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from my Father's hand. So when we don't understand God's sovereignty is a reminder to let God be God. And to allow him to work accordingly. He does not have to reason to conclusions or ponder carefully before he answers. For he knows the end from the beginning. And he never learns and never forgets anything. I think of Psalm 90. Yes, in your eyes a thousand years are like yesterday that quickly pass. 
God is the ultimate, final, and complete authority over everything, and I would argue everyone. Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever it pleases him. And aren't you thankful for that? <laughs> the wise men understood that. That's why there's great joy. The angels understood that because they declared great joy. The shepherds rejoiced, leaving Bobos back in the fields. Why? Because they were there to rejoice. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And so God's sovereignty, one more point here, is that it demands that we trust him. Our anxieties only increase when we consider our daily sufferings and trials, whether it's job loss, which some of you are undergoing, health crisis, the death of a loved one, unpaid bills, belligerent children. <laughs> and in the midst of the lights and all the funness and the cookies, etc., and someone else hanging your lights up, huh. it's... Still easy, isn't it, to wonder, God, are you sovereign? Are you really in charge? Because in the midst of the twinkle, there's this heavy heart, this darkness that looms. And some of you are walking through that. I challenge you to go to Bethlehem. The fulfillment of prophecy in the birth of Jesus should remind us that our good God, who was sovereign, orchestrated these events. For, his good, for our goodness and for his glory. I love what early church father Augustine stated, trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to God's sovereignty. So when we see the nativity scene with the wise men in the other room, we rejoice God is sovereign. But also there in your notes, we have that God is gracious. 1,700 years, countless generations, God's son having come. It's all, be, we're told in Ephesians 1 and 2, it's because of God's grace and his love for us. It's a love which gives us the blessing of acceptance. If we've, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. He redeemed us, he reconciled us, he forgave us, he delivered us, he declared us righteous if we placed our faith in Christ and he will see that we're glorified. Grace, in spite of human imperfection, human failure, and our outright rebellion. I mean, think about Genesis 49 all the way to Micah 5. I don't know about you, but if I was God, I'd have wiped him out a long time ago. We'll just start all over. This is not working. <laughs> you, you rejected me and when you were in Egypt. You rejected me during the time of the judges. You rejected me when I gave you kings, which you demanded. I took you into exile. What more do I need to do with you? And yet God continues to love and be faithful to his people. It's the promises he has made. I can untangle your Christmas lights, though I would rather not. I could even hang them next year. But if you don't turn on the switch, <laughs> you're not going to enjoy them. Far greater is Christ who was more costly than any lights that you could purchase. He endured far more than untangling lights and has a far greater importance than seeing lights decked out on your house. If you have not 
come to worship this one called Jesus. Today's the day. The blessing of acceptance because of his grace, the blessing of enablement. Under grace, we have the opportunity of being called, being used by God, being a part of what he's doing here on earth. Wow! He doesn't need us. But he's seen fit for us to be ambassadors for Christ. You may say, well, you don't know my past, David. Well, let me challenge you. Go back to the genealogy of Jesus. Look at people like David. (laughs) You will say, well, I really don't have much to offer. Then may I direct your attention to a widow from Moab by the name of Ruth? You say, well, you don't know the struggles and doubts I've had. Well, then let me take you to Abraham. Oh, he had a lot of them and lied through some of them. You may say, well, you don't know all that I'm undergoing. Then let me take you to Hezekiah that has the Assyrians outside the gates ready to destroy. Faithfulness of men and women have no bearing on the Lord fulfilling his promise. You can either take part or he'll he'll keep on moving. But God will fulfill his promises. Herod could have went and worshipped Jesus in Bethlehem. The religious rulers could have went and worshipped him. But they refused. It took Gentiles from Persia, Arabia. The Lord can work through us as he deals with humble individuals. Creatures willing to be used by him. And so grace, acceptance, enablement, and finally inheritance. Think about what's promised to those who've placed their faith in Christ. We're complete in Christ. We possess every spiritual blessing. We've got the down payment of the Holy Spirit, and we are heirs of heaven, according to the text. As believers, we're chosen in grace, who mature in grace, and will be glorified in grace. And so this Christmas season, as you reflect on what transpired in Bethlehem of Judah, And with it comes crashing in all these Old Testament texts, these promises that God has given. May you not miss the sovereign hand of God and the grace that he has lavished on us. For indeed, our promised Savior has come. Father, we come to you and we thank you. To see your hand through the pages of scripture. Working through the lives of people just like us. They're not super saints. (laughs) These are men and women who had struggles. They battled illnesses. They battled mourning. They battled wayward children. They, They went through the whole gauntlet as well. And yet you worked through them. Fulfilling the words that came to fruition here in Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. Yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And indeed, at the feet of Jesus, like the Magi, may we be bringing our gifts That is, one, yielding our lives to Christ. 
declaring him as Lord, as Savior, the promised one, the Messiah, the son of David, the great shepherd. And in so doing, by yielding our lives to him, O Lord, may all that we have be placed at Christ's feet. As John the Baptist declared, he, Jesus, must increase. I, John states, must decrease. And Lord, this Christmas season, as we marvel in your sovereign hand that came fulfilled there in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, Lord, we're reminded your sovereign hand guides our lives. And laced with that is grace that oozes from your pores. And Father, we thank you. We marvel. And indeed, we adore you. It's in the blessed name of our Savior Jesus we pray. Amen.